All right, so here's the quote, and this looks like a bunch of words that I won't be able to pronounce. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. You can pronounce that. Connections. <laughs> it's spelled with an X for some reason. Okay. That's just how they used to do it. Connections. So we, there's an X, and you're like, I'm a Spaniard now. <laughs> We're moving on. Connections. Okay. You goth. Great Cthulhu. Seth. Sethagua, Yog Sethoth, Relay, Nyarlathotep, Merkath, Bran, and the Magnum Anominandom. Trying to make it into a dinosaur. Anominandom. Anominandom. And was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity of whatever. Great quote, very meaningful. Hope that's inspiring. everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon, the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. It's also the podcast where you're going to have so much fun you won't even realize you're learning and you're going to learn so much you will forget that you ever had fun. <laughs> Sounds great. Today we are joined by a very special guest. Yes. <laughs> I am Jackie, your first host. I am Rachel, your primary host. I am Theo, the producer. And today we have with us a very special guest. She is Ruthanna Emrys, a science fiction and fantasy author, and we are so excited to have her. Welcome. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yay. Today, in honor of the spooktacular season that has recently come upon us, we are going to be discussing one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, The Whisperer in the Dark. Is that right? Whisperer in the dark. The whisperer in darkness. Whisperer in darkness. The whisperer in darkness. There we go. <laughs> it can be complicated because he has 75, 80 stories, yeah. and like there's two with shadow in the title, and some of them are the tomb, the house, the Yeah. He was not always good at titles. <laughs> he had some recurring themes, for sure. <laughs> right. And happily for us, this story contains one of our very favorite themes, which is brains in jars. This is something that the <laughs> Three of us have been, we've had a, how would you say it? Uh, a running joke. We've had an affection for this trope since high school. An affection? Uh, our producer, Theo, used to write, I won't say used to, because I hope that he will again someday. He used to write parodies of different stories, and he wrote one that was a space odyssey, and in it, a guy in our friend group ends up being a brain in a jar, and then in the stories that he wrote after that, there we were all reused as new characters, but none of us carried over, except Caleb was always a brain in a jar. Like, he was the same <laughs> brain, and like, remembered the previous stories, but none of the others yeah. of us did. It was kind of inspired, the, there's a Star Trek episode where there's some brains and tubes that gamble on fights, or something like that. I don't know. But hmm. the Game Masters of Triskelion. Whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. She's yeah. a real deal. Showing my age. <laughs> well, showing your sci-fi writer creds, I would say more so. Yeah. yeah. So are are you a Star Trek person over a Star Wars person, I can take it? Or Star Trek was my initiation into the world of science fiction and fantasy. And I was eventually a convert to Star Wars. 
scores um, to the degree that I still feel that these are in any way competing. <laughs> but there was a period where I was watching all of the original Trek episodes in black and white on a ridiculously old TV with terrible reception in the 80s. And I had to have everything memorized because half the time the dialogue wasn't coming. <laughs> but that's a vibe, though. That sounds very aesthetic. It is not an aesthetic that I miss. It's, she's like, I don't like that aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of fantasy, so on a scale from nine to ten, where both are great, how do you feel about Lord of the Rings? Uh, the movie or the uh, uh, just the just the, the, both the concept both. as a fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> the books definitely in the nine range. Okay. The movies, I'm still mad about the absence of Tom Bombadil. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we yeah. talk about that. And the leaves being the wrong color in La Florian. <laughs> you know, isn't he coming out, or he's Peter Jackson is coming out soon, or has already come out with like an eight hour cut of. The Fellowship of the Ring, so maybe Bombadil's in there. Um. I, I have heard this. It's the sort of thing that makes me very grateful to have editors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I Honestly, I don't understand how they keep getting longer. Like, how many years has it been? 15? 17 years now? He has and a lot of like, footage. But how? <laughs> if I was one of the actors, I would be so mad. Why? I'd be like, oh cool, release that. Because that's too much, too much filming. Well, they got paid for it. If he's coming out with an eight-hour version, it means he cut out more than half of it. I'm sure that's normal normal for movies maybe maybe it's just to a greater extent but you know what we'll get orlando bloom on the pod and we'll ask him oh i'd love to get orlando on the pod someday we'll have a guest on who's like oh like i was his next door neighbor or whatever orly yeah i can get him for you we keep having guests in the hope that one of them is going to tell us they're connected to someone extremely famous um, no well, that's not why just kidding no well but ruthanna rachel was very excited um when you agreed to come on so we're super happy to have you here would you like to tell us a little bit about um what you've written so that our audience can like look that up if they if they choose to? Sure. So I am, I guess, most relevantly for today's discussion, the author of the Innsmouth Legacy series, which is Wintertide and Deep Roots, and they are deconstructions and sequels to a different Lovecraft story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and are essentially taking Lovecraft's villains who Lovecraft being the sort of person that he unfortunately was inevitably were meant to be Jewish people and people with mental illnesses and scary people who don't speak English and mixed race yeah <laughs> and it's a story from their point of view with them being as close to good guys as anyone gets in my work and um having to deal with the actual historical world of the 1940s and also try and keep the Cold War from turning into a hot war. So in addition to that, uh, even more relevantly, I have been blogging the what was called the Lovecraft Reread and is now expanded to Reading the Weird on Tor.com for about six years now with Anne M. Pillsworth, another neo-Lovecraftian author. Uh, we started out by um, doing read-throughs of all of Lovecraft's stories, uh, usually with equal parts of squeeing about the parts that we like 
and <laughs> making fun of the parts that we take issue with. And then we expanded to other weird fiction ranging from, I think, our earliest, maybe from the 1700s up to, in a couple of cases, things that haven't come out yet. Wow. So if you record that, you've basically just got our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but only about weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then I've also, um, I, I write other science fiction and fantasy. I have various short stories out. I have a first contact novel coming out in July of next year called A Half-Built Garden. Which I'm very excited about. Which is completely different from the Lovecraftian books, except that it is also obsessed with the ocean and water and has found family in it and strange aliens and people trying to communicate with them. So I've got a brand, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I have explained the series, the Innsmouth Legacy, to some friends before by saying basically like in Lovecraft's writing, because he was like such a weird racist, his story is basically like fish people bad. And Ruthanna Emrys's story is more like, no, fish people, people. people so people if too. that's interesting yeah. to you, <laughs> you should definitely check it out. Yes. And uh, I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a big science fiction reader by any means. That's definitely more Rachel, but that does sound really interesting to me. And I did not know that there were, I mean, I guess I could have guessed, but I just didn't actively know that there were such things as neo-Lovecraftian authors. Oh yeah. A great many. <laughs> yeah. It's super interesting to think about reimagining some of the more problematic aspects of his stories. And so you still get, you know, the good parts, but just kind of updated and better. <laughs> it's been a huge movement over the last few years. There's uh, Victor Laval is one of the major ones. The Ballad of Black Tom, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that one's great. Mm. I just read, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right, but Premi Mohammed's Beneath the Rising. So good. I was on a vacation and I, I had had that on my shelf for a while. I'm like, I really want to read this, but I get really scared very easily. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be somewhere really sunny and bright and warm. I think I can counteract <laughs> any creepiness. <laughs> so I read it. It was great. So I'm looking forward to books two and three. There's a lot of really good stuff. I think most of the good like Lovecraftian things written now are usually by people like women or people of color or queer people who read Lovecraft growing up and were like, I really love these aspects, but I hate what a dick this guy is. Uh -huh. So it's it's really cool to get to see them like getting to play in that space and having it published and recognized and that sort of thing. So that's something I've followed yes. with interest. Would one of you be able to... Um kind of describe for listeners slash hosts slash producers who aren't as familiar with Lovecraft <laughs> um, kind of what his deal was and what was kind of problematic about him. I mean, was he more problematic than the average like white dude in the 30s? Yes. So this is something I'll get into a little more with this story, which I think comes at a really interesting point in his writing for his bigotry. <laughs> Lovecraft was the 20s equivalent of the guy in living in his parents' basement and posting on internet forums. Uh. He was a very smart guy, extraordinarily creative, very sheltered, and raised in a setting where white 
Anglo-Protestants were the only people who were real people. And add to that the fact that he fairly obviously had a great deal of anxiety that all got directed towards—well, I can't say it all got directed towards these others, because he was also terrified of things like the ocean and old houses. But uh, <laughs> a great deal of it got directed towards people who were in any way different from those that he grew up with. And he was considered extremely bigoted by his friends. It was a fairly extreme bigotry, and I find it notable in a lot of his work that it's a very knee-jerk bigotry. He tends to assume that everyone finds this stuff terrifying and disgusting, which means that a lot of the trappings of intellectual explanation of why those people over there are terrible that you tend to find in your average bigot of that time aren't there. And a lot a lot of his work ends up being around the combination of attraction to and repulsion of the things that are different. And I won't get into it now, but one of the things that I find interesting about this particular story is this is a story that is very clearly about kind of wanting to try and get along with those strange people over there, but being convinced that doing so would be a terrible idea and would expose you to all sorts of dreadful things that you oughtn't be exposed to. But mm. you could have some really cool conversations, if only if it was okay to like those people. Right. And it's a fairly late one of his stories in that way. And mm. he died within the next five years. And one always does sort of wonder how that would have moved. I, I'm not someone who wants to say, oh, yes, he was definitely fined by the end or getting fined. But there was definitely some change there. And it was an interesting change. And because he is a safely dead, bigoted old white guy, um, I sometimes use it as a way to try and understand what's going on in the heads of modern bigots who are a more immediate threat to yeah. me and myself and my people. Either, huh? Who are either alive or not safely dead. <laughs> yeah, this story is very much seems to be like his fear of wink, wink, open-mindedness, which is a nice little hint for you, audience, if you haven't read it yet, about where it's going. It's very interesting in that regard. I can't wait to talk about it. The thing I really think is interesting about Lovecraft's stories is that, like you were saying, because he doesn't really explain his fears, a lot of the times the narrator is just so obviously wrong. Like, the narrator will be saying something about, oh, look at this horrible thing these people are doing. And you're like, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's an amazing thing that they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's I don't think it's spoiling it because again we're gonna talk about the plot of this novella, but because I didn't read it, I listened to it. And I, I think this is only like the second Lovecraft or maybe third thing that I've ever like encountered. So I again not very familiar at all. But I found it very interesting the lengths that he goes to to I mean, in my opinion, I thought he was making it kind of unclear about what the truth was. And I could see these little, you know, stratagems and details that he put in seemingly just to set us up for, like, the next question, which then would not really get answered but could get answered. And it, it, the whole thing was just, like, 
I mean, a mind fuck. I mean, it's just like, what is going on here? What's real? <laughs> and so he's really great at drawing you in that way. Yeah. One of the things that took me a while to get my mind around with Lovecraftian narrators is often they're so slow to come to a realization that seems obvious to the reader. And eventually I realized after reading some portion of the full set of stories that the thing that he's really interested in is not the process of revealing what's going on to the reader, but the psychological process of the narrator realizing that their way of understanding the universe is wrong and coming to this realization that they've been in denial about. And so why was he so bad at that in his own thinking? I don't know if I would say that he is bad at the sort of realization that he has his narrators come to, because his narrators are never coming to the realization except once in Shadow Over Innsmouth, where he's clearly as the author against it, that this stuff is actually okay and you could go out and learn all about the universe and have a great time. What they're doing <laughs> is coming to the realization, and it's terrible, yeah, yeah. that humanity, by which he means white, Anglo, Protestant, or atheist humanity is not the center of the universe. And that's bad. <laughs> and that's bad. And that the lie oh, no. that they are is the only thing separating humanity from chaos and destruction. Yeah. He's like the black-pilled incels today, basically. Audience, I hope you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you do, then you get it. I, I would worry about him a great deal if he was able to get on the internet, because I am sure that he would fall in with truly <laughs> terrible crowds and become much worse these days. I mean, me being a complete novice, I don't know that he would have trusted the internet. He probably would have been like, mm, that's a portal to something strange. The thing is, he was on it in the way that it existed then, which is to say that his was really one of these lives of letters in the sense that 90% of his social interaction was these long, detailed letters with other people writing weird fiction and working in the amateur press. And some of these letters are him speculating about wild cosmic stuff, and some of these letters are him talking about how utterly horrible it is to bump into Jewish people on the streets of New York. And some of these letters are him writing uh, about the cosmic vistas and strange aeons leading to the creation of some caves that he went and explored, um, which are some caves that I have been to, and they're very nice caves, but they're not actually cosmic vistas. But, you know, oh, words and words and words. Uh, so much letter writing, and he was so socially connected in any way that did not involve actually being face to face, which he did occasionally. So he would have, it seems like he would have been a great denizen of like the early nineties internet, like the chat forums yes. and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. He wouldn't have been on Instagram. He would still be on live journal. <laughs> I know he had like a weird relationship with his parents, but didn't his mom like always tell him he was hideous or something like would criticize his appearance and so I should say that I tend to avoid reading his letters as right, a matter right. of self-preservation it's usually Anne's job to remember most of the biographical details but his family life was definitely a pretty odd one his mom had some strange things to say to him his father um, was in an asylum with mental illness uh, he was raised in large 
part by his aunts. So it, it was sort of an odd upbringing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess I had one more question before we maybe before we move to the book, unless anyone else had something. But in his groups of friends, like he had some Jewish friends and his wife was Jewish, not practicing, but she was Jewish. And I'm wondering, did that have any effect on his anti-Semitism? Or was he the kind of guy who's like, knee-jerk, I don't like Jewish people, but these individual ones are like good ones and I'm fine with them. Yeah, like this one left it behind. So that's even better. So I have theories about this and some of this is like not things there is clear support for. But yeah, he had Jewish friends. He was married to a Jewish woman. They were certainly all people who, as long as they weren't talking about Jewish stuff, could pass as white. And I think he tried to mostly ignore that they were Jewish. Um, Mm -hmm. There were apparently times when he would go on anti-Semitic rants at Sonia Green and she would say, uh, Howard, do you remember that I'm Jewish? Could you stop it? And he mostly didn't. <laughs> and it was clearly one of those things where he was pretty much happy to talk to anyone who looked and sounded like the people he thought were people, as long as they could be talking about the amateur press and science fiction and fantasy and the things that he enjoyed talking about. Mm-hmm. The part that's my theory is in trying to figure out why Sonia Green would marry this guy. I have a feeling because she was very much into the amateur press work herself. She was a businesswoman and a lot of the money from her hat district she put into putting out zines and so on. And I have a feeling this was a guy that she could talk to about her hobbies and the things she Mm. cared about in a way that you probably couldn't talk to most men in that time period because people describe him as sexist but in fact from um, a lot of his stories I get the sense that he didn't really mostly notice gender (laughs) and that as long as you were talking to him about something that he was interested in he was just going to be a brain in a jar and treat you as a brain in a jar (laughs) he was talking about interesting stuff. So you think she was like it's worth it to have a spouse who respects me intellectually even if he occasionally goes off on anti-semitic rants that that is my best guess there and <laughs> i feel so bad for her they had a weird marriage they didn't live together for most of the marriage mostly for financial reasons but quite possibly for other ones um they clearly both had feels about the fact that she was the main breadwinner of the couple and it was just obviously very messy. oh i just wanted to say on her wikipedia page is not super long but one of the things on there is like sonia green said that he was more than adequate sexually. I'm like, this This is one of the few things that should be on her Wikipedia page. <laughs> so here's the deal with that. After Lovecraft died, he had been a really substantial mentor for a lot of other weird fiction authors and had a lot of people who were in his circle and who got to write about his characters and settings. August Derleth took on for himself the mantle of the person who would maintain and share Lovecraft's legacy (laughs) and who would keep his stories published and who would write more stuff, which he was quite bad at. 
and he kind of resented the degree to which Sonia knew things about him that he didn't, and she resented the degree to which he was trying to take that on. And at one point, he showed up at her door trying to ask her questions about him, and one of the things that he would not stop asking her about was whether they had a good sexual relationship. And eventually, <laughs> she said that, that quote gets quoted completely out of the context that <laughs> this guy's old friend who she hated was showing up at her door trying to harangue her about her sex life with her dead husband. So she just blurted out he was more than adequate and then or, just or to get him away. she said something just to shut it. Yeah. <laughs> is that a compliment? I mean, more than adequate. I feel like adequate would be I, I an insult. Uh, none of your business shut up is how yeah. you pronounce it. I wonder if there were a lot of people, because if I read his stuff, it does give me the impression where I'm like, this guy's got a lot of insecurities. Maybe he's got some weird sexual hangups. So I'm wondering if a lot of people were kind of speculating about Lovecraft having some sexual hangups and his friend was like, uh, nah, listen to this. And people still do speculate about his sexuality. Um, several people believe that he had a couple of queer relationships with other men. I tend to, when I look at the way his stories talk about, or mostly don't talk about women and mostly don't talk about sex compared to the other people running the post at the time. I sort of suspect that he was at least on the ace spectrum. Um, but it's not, in fact, my business. Sonia Green says it's not my business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, um, well, when you were talking about the way that he seems not to notice gender and not sometimes not to notice these other like personal characteristics of people, as long as you can just talk to him about what he's interested in talking about. I mean, do we think that Lovecraft was neurotypical to the extent that anyone is either yes or no? You know what I mean? He almost certainly had an anxiety disorder. Um, I would not speculate about whether he was autistic or holistic or had ADHD or anything like that. Yeah. I'm holistic, so it's not really my point. Place. Um, a lot of people have commented on that sort of thing, and it seems plausible, but it also seems perfectly plausible that there are a lot of ways to get to be the mm -hmm. sort of person that he was on all sorts of different levels of that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a natural impulse to want to put, you know, like labels or boxes on people, but he, he had a lot going on, it sounds He like. definitely seemed to be very afraid of some kind of like genetic mental illness just from the way that he wrote. Yeah. I'm assuming it wouldn't be surprising, like something that came from just his ancestry that he was, which is is something very common like I come from a family that has a lot of mental illness mm -hmm. that is like passed down and that's something I would worry about for my own kids so I can see why that would mm -hmm. be a big part of his writing but it definitely seemed like something that took up a lot of his thoughts in a lot of his stories, there's, you know, some sort of taint in mm -hmm. the blood, which can mm -hmm. be anything from secret fish people ancestry to your grandmother married an ape. And there's a bunch of others, but, yeah. you know, it was definitely a thing that terrified him. I do wonder what he would think about 23andMe or something like that or Ancestry.com these days if he gets a report back and it's like, all right, like, you know, 65% like Western European and then at the very bottom, 0.8% fish people. <laughs> it's, it's a scary possibility. <laughs> but I was going to say, as a genetic counselor, I know that, you know, every single person, at, at pretty much not exaggerating, you know, on the back of the form, when we're asking about family history, everybody circles psychiatric illness. And everybody's worried about it, though. So, I mean, they don't see that everybody else is also circling the same thing. But it, it's definitely something that I can see being a real concern. Mm. Should we talk about the story? 
<laughs> Unless, Ruthanna, yeah. you have anything else that you think would be useful for background information for the audience? No, no, I'd like to talk about the story. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just show you guys I'm wearing my outer space dress today oh, oh, in God. honor of <laughs> some of our heroes, villains, whatever you want to call them. I wanted to show you guys I'm wearing my human skin suit Yay. today. <laughs> <laughs> I have Jackie's face and hands. I mean, my face and yeah. hands. <laughs> I wanted to let you know that I've taken the brain out of the jar and put it in my head today. Ooh, I couldn't tell, but thank you for letting us know. And I am interacting with the world through electronic means that provide me with a minimal sensorium of vision and hearing. <laughs> the collection of pixels that I currently see on the screen is arranging itself into the pattern that I know as Ruthanna Emerus. So. Well, I'm curious with this story, um, if someone was like saying, what Lovecraft should I read? Is this the one you would suggest or is this, did you suggest it for a different reason? When someone asks, which Lovecraft should I read? I usually ask them a bunch of questions because mm. it depends on what sort of horror and weird fiction you're most interested in and how much patience you have for a lot of infodumpy <laughs> world building and how much patience you have for bigoted outbursts because <laughs> there are different ratios in all of them. But I picked this one because it has a certain amount of a lot of things that are very typical of Lovecraft that I thought would be interesting to talk about and also because I did take the aliens for my second book because they're really, really funny aliens. Yeah. Nice. You should uh, create like a multi, like a multiple choice quiz, like Seventeen Magazine or something. The BuzzFeed like, quiz. Which haircut should you get? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like turn up the dial for how much racism you can handle, how yeah. much info yeah. dump. <laughs> yeah. And in many cases, my answer to which Lovecraft should I read first is don't read Lovecraft. Mm. Go and read one of the modern people who mm. are riffing off of him with a modern psychological and social justice sensibility or go read The King in Yellow, which is contemporaneous, but is a lot less scared of people and a lot more scared of the effects that the books that you read will have on your brain. Mm -hmm. I do think like... I totally get your point about saying, like, don't bother reading Lovecraft. But when I read a neo-Lovecraftian thing, I do tend to enjoy it more when I have read the source material, just because then I can see, like, what did they actually take? What did they mess with? What did they leave? So I think I might even be like, which of these newer books are you interested in? Okay, this is sort of based on this story. So maybe read that story <laughs> or the Wikipedia article for the story. <laughs> and for some people, I will, or I will point them at uh, the Lovecraft reread where yeah. we summarize the stuff to get people around that bit if they want to. But some people are very happy reading the original. Um, and, you know, as someone who writes a lot of deconstruction, I feel like writing it in such a way that you can get a lot out of it without reading the original mm -hmm. is its own sort of art. I just read Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia without ever actually having read, I confess, the Aeneid. And it's an amazing <laughs> book. But I also suspect that if I had read the Aeneid, I would have gotten more out of it. But I certainly got quite a lot out of it without that because Le Guin was genius. Right. <laughs> and for Rachel and for you and other people who are kind of coming at, you know, reading with an interest in 
how stories get created and, you know, thinking about writing themselves. I mean, it's probably more interesting to think like, how did this person piece these different aspects together? But I'm sure there's a lot of dummies out there like me who would just like to read the Neo thing and have <laughs> no additional need for anything else. So <laughs> dummies welcome. We take all kinds here. All right, so jumping into the story. Yeah, so first I should say that this is one that is slightly difficult to summarize because like many Lovecraft stories, it's not entirely linear and it's not well-balanced in terms of actual action. <laughs> and a lot of it is second and third-hand letters, which when you think about the fact that he was a constant letter writer interacting with the world through letters, it suddenly makes so much more sense why he has almost no dialogue and people talking to each other through long detailed letters right. that tell you what's going on somewhere else. Yeah. So you'd be like, yeah. this is a normal way for someone's life to be. There's 5% action, 95% receiving and sending letters. Yeah, and then <laughs> thinking about the letters. And and I think Rachel probably told you, but the majority of our listeners don't read the things we talk about, so we kind of like to give them just a very beginner's level, like, here's what's going on. Okay, so let me see if I can do this. <laughs> so, Professor Wilmarth of Miskatonic University University receives correspondence from a gentleman named Akeley in Vermont, who is sort of a casual man of the earth in Vermont, but who has sort of a scientific mind and who is writing him about these strange bodies that have been washing up after floods in Vermont. And there is local legend about these strange creatures from beyond earth that look like crabs and have tentacles, and it's considered to be a variation on legends about the fair folk. <laughs> and Akeley believes that these creatures are after him. <laughs> he has found a strange tablet that has their writing on it, and he knows some of their secrets, and he's been going out in the woods to try and record their rituals and they are scaring his dogs and coming around his house, and it's all very scary. <laughs> and the two of them go back and forth in correspondence for quite some time with Akeley making recordings of strange buzzing voices out in the woods and people doing rituals with them. They're very scary rituals, and they mention many of the famous Lovecraft mythos names, and everything shows up by mention in this story. It's a lot there of name is, dropping. As a thought, there is Shagath, there is Cthulhu, and there are shout-outs to all of Lovecraft's favorite author friends and their creations. Well, that's sweet of him. <laughs> happens all the time. This is one of my favorite things about weird fiction is everyone is constantly putting each other's creations in and killing each other off as side characters. <laughs> it's all very loving and sweet. Theo wants to be in that world. That what were you Theo say, basically yeah. is in that world. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean? With your stories. That's all you do is like uh, kill us off. And <laughs> yeah, I made him mad one time and he waited years and then wrote a story in which he killed me terribly. This is how authors show affection. Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> Jackie. Yeah. So eventually, they, they go back and forth and try and figure out 
how they can keep Akeley safe in spite of his unwillingness to leave the place where all of these aliens are coming after him because if he did, there wouldn't be a story and they are trying to figure out if they can prove things to people. Then Akeley sends a letter that's basically like, they're coming after me. Oh no, it, it is all too late. And then he sends another letter after that saying, okay, so I've sat down and I've talked to these guys and it's really actually okay. <laughs> yeah. And you should come up and learn all about the cool stuff that I've learned. I was completely <laughs> wrong. And bring all of the letters and all of the recordings with you. Yeah. Not suspicious at all. And also, this one's typed, not written. <laughs> bring all of the proof I've sent you. Uh, I'd love to see you. Also, please don't forget to bring all the proof. Um, yes, bring uh-huh. the proof. <laughs> yes. Wilmarth, being an idiot, yeah. goes to visit Akeley with all of the proof with him. And he finds Akeley, obviously obviously quite ill. His voice is hoarse and kind of buzzing, and he's wrapped up in blankets, and he has bandages on the hands, but he says, don't worry, I've just got a little cold. <laughs> I can't go out in the sunlight. <laughs> this is what happens when you get a cold, right? And he tells him about how the Outer Ones have come and visited him and told him all these amazing secrets of the universe. He goes on for hours about the amazing things they do, and it turns out that the Outer Ones can take your brain out of your body. They're really, really good at neuroscience (laughs) and put it in these canisters because they can travel through space just in their own bodies and between dimensions and through time. But to bring other people with them, they can only take their brains in jars. (laughs) What a weird limitation. You'd think you could figure out a way, just put the whole body in the jar. And this is a really great thing to do. You get to see the universe. You get to learn all of the secrets and you can have a perfectly nice life just being carried around in a jar and seeing and hearing things. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> you could come with me if you want. Doesn't he say like you can get a robot body or something on some of the planets? No, no. Or no. You, you cannot get a robot I body. I about a robot. <laughs> I mean, I would personally add in robot bodies because I think moving around is really great. But the Migo did not ask me about yeah. the best oh, way to handle He's like, I don't care. <laughs> he goes to bed with his head spinning and feeling sort of horrified by everything he's heard. And that night he hears people talking downstairs and he creeps down to listen. And he hears the buzzing voices and one of the voices from the canister that sounds scared arguing about how to handle him and what to do. And now he's really worried. And when he goes back downstairs, he sees the hands and face of Akeley, which is the only part of him he saw directly before, left on the chair as masks and gloves. And there's nothing else there. And he realizes that he was really actually talking to one of the outer ones the other night and that Akeley has already been put in a canister against his will to be taken away. Which was one of the funniest parts was when uh, he was talking to Akeley, who is, we now know, literally just an alien with like the skin face mask on him. And he said, here, I'll show you how it works. Like, go get someone else's canister off from that shelf. You can attach the voice thing to it. We'll listen to it talk. So he does that and he says, oh, and just ignore the canister that has my name on it. Don't touch that one. That's for me later. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't they just 
I mean, I know because it's the purpose of the story, right? But why didn't they just turn that canister around or hide it in a different room or something? Or don't label it with Akeley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, give it another name. So he says, uh, don't touch that canister. Uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> use this other one. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he runs off with none of the proof. And he knows that the new discovery of Pluto is telling us where Yugoth is secretly. That's where the aliens have their base in the outer solar system. The fact that we've discovered it means that they want to get in closer touch with us and dun dun dum and that that is basically how it ends and i should also say that when he's talking with what turns out to be one of the aliens one of the things that they say as sort of see uh, Yagoth and the universe pitch is that the community of brains in jars is very cosmopolitan and has people from all over the world and all over the universe who can just talk to each other without any of these external characteristics as brains in jars. Yeah. And this is meant to be one of the things that is terrible about them is that they're cosmopolitan. <laughs> because clearly, if you give in to your desire to talk to people who are different from you and learn about the universe beyond your immediate surroundings, then you will lose everything that makes it possible for you to take action on the world and be utterly helpless in the face of these others. Or you'll lose the core things that make you human as well. Yep. Yeah. So I think he would have hated the internet. <laughs> but it's, it's also very obvious when he's writing that this is meant to be something that is both attractive and repulsive. Mm -hmm. Like, you get to learn all of these things, you get to talk to all of these people, and learning and having conversations were, in fact, some of his favorite things. Mm -hmm. But he also felt that he, you know, should be a man of action and should be able to go out and act on the world, and that that is one of the things that is special about the people who are really people. Yeah. So clearly this is a trade-off between the things that you want and the things that are the right things to be human. And the people and things who are um, trying to convince him to do this, to like, here, give us your brain. It'll be fine. It'll take be your great. Head off, we'll girl. go see things. Yeah, take your head off, girl. I was thinking that too <laughs> from Labyrinth. Um, you know, they're trying to convince him to do this and it's almost like they're, yeah, they're appealing to some sense of shame in him. Like, you know, you're you're an intelligent guy. Like, I know that you're going to understand this impulse. And if you don't understand this impulse to want to go and do this, like maybe you're not quite as intelligent or as uh, knowledge seeking as you seem to be. Yeah, like we could tell you were special. Yeah. Maybe you're not special where we wrong? What? And this is not the only place that this sort of thing shows up in Lovecraft either, especially in his later stories, which of course he was also writing as he was getting sicker and, you know, clearly going to be less physically able. And so there are also there are other aliens. There are the Yith who will change minds with you across space and time and you get to join the community of minds in the Cretaceous while someone else wanders around in your body <laughs> and makes all your loved ones want to go away and you have a lot of potential options for serious trade-off travel through space and time is what i'm saying yeah oh the other thing i think that we hadn't mentioned is that while your brain is traveling the outer one says your body is preserved and it doesn't age at all while your brain is out and your brain could live forever with all these nutrients. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's why I was thinking, dang, Jackie would love this. If an alien was like, Jackie, yeah. get in this tube and <laughs> you can come back. I know. And well, and that's one of the great 
the things that good science fiction does, right? It makes you imagine all the other possibilities that aren't even stated in the story. And, you know, so I'm thinking about mm. this and I don't think exactly what Rachel expected me to think I was thinking. I wasn't like, oh, I'd like to take my brain out <laughs> and then my body could just remain ageless. But I mean, think about it. Like, I don't know. There's so many small and large real world imp implications of that. Like, I know that we're about to have a period of terrible weather and I'd like to just kind of save my body. So I'm just going to put my brain in the tube for a week or two and then just come back out when it's sunny again. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. Or like quarantine, right? Perfect example. I can't leave my house for like a year. Put my body over there and put my brain in here. Like, and the other ones are getting so annoyed with you. Like, God, we got to put it back in their body and then I take it out like every other week. We never should have offered this to Jackie. She's taking advantage of us. Yeah, yeah and I do want to live to be really old. Do you think uh, Lovecraft would have been into the idea of, or did he ever know about cryogenics? Was that an idea back in the twenties? Not in the twenties, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, if we could actually pause just two seconds because I have a household member here. Of course. What, are you looking? For for a brain in a jar or something else. <laughs> okay, you found yeah, it. Yeah, you should keep that in. <laughs> I was just going to say um, that what I remembered was that uh, I had a dream a few months ago or a nightmare that I, this story actually made me think about, but it was a dream in which I was told, so I have migraines and they were to, I was told, hey, there's a new treatment for migraines. It involves removing your brain. <laughs> it turns out that the cerebrospinal fluid that's in your brain already, we can like imbue it with some other property and the neurons will kind of just like freely float in there and you can live without a brain and keep... <laughs> all of the same faculties and, and experiences and skills and you'll never get another headache and I was like sign me up <laughs> so they took my brain out and filled my head with this fluid and I remember like in the dream I was like what have I done I just gave my brain away and I can never get it back and now I have no brain. And what if this fluid doesn't work forever? And like, that is just my entire self that I, you know, got rid of. So the end of the dream was I was saying like, oh my God, I just got rid of my brain. How could I have done this? This was such a stupid mistake. And so I was talking to someone about it and she was like, well, why don't you just ask for it back? And I was like, okay. So I went and asked for it back and they said, sorry, we've already given your brain to a little Russian boy. You can't have it back. Oh, no. <laughs> So the idea of taking a, my brain out and putting it in a jar actually is extremely horrifying to me. Oh. I guess so. Contrary to what Rachel thought. But just because <laughs> of that one dream. I'm confused why you thought Jackie would be the one who would like this. Because she loves space. Yeah, well... I love being a brain in a jar. I know, I know, that's the thing. Jackie, <laughs> no matter what context. <laughs> only one of us can love it. It's got to be me or him. Okay. I was thinking that Jackie would love the space travel part. Be like, it's worth it to be a brain in a jar if I can travel through space. You would say, oh my gosh, I don't have to have a body. I don't have to decide what clothes to wear, blah, blah, so blah. Like efficient. you'd want to be a brain yeah. in a jar, but you wouldn't care about traveling through space. <laughs> I think I would be fine with being a brain in a jar traveling through space, but only like once it was clear that I was like not going to be able to hack it in my human body anymore. I want to get everything out of this one that I can. Yeah, for me, it definitely hits the balance of like, I can see the temptation, but boy, am I attached to embodied cognition and having some control over where my brain goes and what it does and what I see and do. Yeah, I bet there's a lot that I'm taking for granted. <laughs> I realize after I'm a brain in a jar that I was taking it for granted. See, if you had my dream, you would know that brains are important and you can't just like willy-nilly get rid of them but um, i don't think it seemed important you seem to be fine with just the liquid i 
feel that would be your uh, sci-fi version of a Christmas Carol. <laughs> what would it would be a story where you become a brain in a jar and you realize all the things that <laughs> were so good about your life yeah. before, and then you wake up and you're like, I want my body. Yeah, death um, pointing back and forth between you and a jar. <laughs> so another funny thing about this story is that so you know these aliens who maybe we should describe right i think you describe them as kind of crab-like but they're also funguses they're fungi oh they're so hard to describe (laughs) yeah they're kind of fungus which is kind of because lovecraft was also terrified of mushrooms (laughs) i am terrified of mushrooms and mold i empathize with this very heavily (laughs) yeah so but they look they have crabby legs and they have tentacles coming out of their heads and they're not actually made of the same stuff that we are. They're from a place where physics are different, so they don't show up on film. But they could very easily. Show up on film? <laughs> That's what, didn't he say like, some chemist would be able to figure out a way to do yeah, it? Yeah, you could create some kind of like photo developing <laughs> fluid and then it would deal with their physics and then we could capture it, but currently we don't have that. But yeah, so I can't imagine why anybody thought Lovecraft would have had a weird sexual hangup. <laughs> so another funny thing is so they, they're really skilled at, like you said, neurosurgery. What they will do is they'll put your brain into this canister and you can attach a speech function to it and you'll be able the brain will be able to speak and and so it just kind of sounds like a robot because it doesn't you know retain your vocal cords or anything like that and you also have um, sight and hearing functions when you're in this canister but that was it those are the three things he gives you yep. the creatures cannot give you a sense of I mean, not that you would need taste or smell, or but you can't feel anything. <laughs> he said nothing about like what it must be like to live without those senses. It's almost like he didn't even care about them at all. He just said, if you have speech, hearing, and sight, that's all you need. He would have been very into the rapture of the nerds and wanting to get uploaded to a computer, <laughs> is my impression. <laughs> I like the idea of they still give you the sense of taste and you're just like this brain in a jar that has liquid in it and they just like open like a, a ramen seasoning packet and pour it in there. For what do you think of this? <laughs> yeah. They take a bouillon cube and just like put it in and you're like, ooh, tasty. Um, so are these aliens... Okay, so this alien says something to him at one point that's like, oh, whenever you hear about the aliens killing people, it's because some people work for these bad dudes like are these aliens enemies with cthulhu and those guys so lovecraft in his own writing is never clear uh, about the various mythos entities what the relationships between them are except that they don't ne- all necessarily get along all the time but the idea that there are like sides that they're breaking down on is a thing that Durleth came up with later on, which really annoys me because it makes them feel much more like mm-hmm. humans and is very sort of standardly dualistic, whereas Lovecraft's universe, as he writes it, is very much not dualistic. It's very, you know, any motivations these things have, you're not going to get. Mm-hmm. But they do, they do say that there are human cultists who are trying to do bad things to them. So definitely the Amigo themselves claim to have enemies. Is it? Are we supposed to believe that, or are we supposed to think that the creature was saying that to him just to convince him that they were good? I guess that's my question. That's kind of what I figured. The latter. I mean, but it's so like I said, so much of it is left open to interpretation. I think, but yeah, there are so many different, you know, different cults and different entities that it seems very likely that some of them would 
not get along and whether you thought that it was reasonable for them to be fighting each other or not is a whole separate question. Right. I did think it was really funny that these aliens are, they're so different from us and they're so powerful, blah, 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 but they can be just killed with a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. You can't pick them up on a camera, but you can totally pick them up with a shotgun. Yeah. yeah or like a dog can bite them and they die or whatever. Yeah. That's the thing I really didn't like about these Migo. I'm just like, guys, please don't kill dogs. <laughs> you can mess with these guys' brains all you want, but please. <laughs> How many dogs died in this story? Right. A ton. If you're sensitive to dog death, do not read this story because there are so many dogs that die. <laughs> at one point, doesn't he, in the letter, he like writes, the people at the kennel must think I'm crazy getting all these dogs all I the thought, time. Why do they keep giving him more dogs? Keep giving him dogs. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's job security, but like, gosh, at a certain point, have some humanity. But so one thing that I found interesting about this was, so the narrator takes this kind of skeptical, very scientific approach to things. So in the first, like, several chapters of the story, he's like, yeah, I mean, it's possible that maybe he, th you know, Akeley thinks he's experiencing these things, but here's some rational explanations for them. You know, maybe there's some things that can't be explained, but I'm sure that there is, you know, an explanation that doesn't involve aliens or, like, hauntings or anything like that. I thought that was so much more effective than having Akeley be the narrator of the story, right? Like, so you get to go along this journey of kind of doubting what's going on, but then slowly being convinced. And I mean, the horror builds that way. Right. I just like that. I thought that was a good choice. I thought that Wilmarth was perhaps our most gullible narrator apart from yeah, Sanger Rainsford from The Most Dangerous Game. I would love to see those two guys get together. Yeah. I know, it would be a disaster. <laughs> well, then that leads me to be like, you know, he was really reasonable up until the point where the final letter, the final written letter from Akeley is basically completely... Uh, you know, just written in a huge hurry and says, like, they're coming for me. They're coming. I don't know what to do. It's too late. I'm going to die. They're going to get it's me. It's horrible. Yeah. The very next day, he gets a typed letter that's like, actually, everything's fine. Why don't you come see me? And he doesn't really explain why he decides to go see him. Like, he really believes yeah. this. Well, he says, like, I was so I wanted to believe that he was fine. And I was thinking, hey, if I had talked to aliens, it would probably totally change my perspective, too. So I guess it's not so weird that he's <laughs> so chill now. But maybe make some mimeographs of your evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First. Yeah. Maybe say, whoops, I left behind the stone. Sorry, <laughs> don't have it with me. Uh, I was thinking if this was a choose your own adventure, it would be like choice A, fall for obvious track or choice B <laughs> just like stop worrying about this <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean I get what he's saying like yeah if aliens talk to me I would be changed yeah 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 whatever but I think all of the evidence on the other side like the fact that it's been zero amount of time and he's changed his mind completely <laughs> and he also no longer um, has the ability to handwrite his letters and he spends a long time explaining why he's not handwriting his letters yeah he's like uh, by the way if you're suspicious don't be suspicious <laughs> it's fine <laughs> I have claws now <laughs> and he also even says, like, yeah, his spelling and his his style of writing is, like, completely different. But, you know, it might have just been because he's so calm now. <laughs> and also, like, maybe I'm saying this partly because it's 2021, but also I have read War of the Worlds. If someone has just met aliens for the first time and now suddenly they're really sick and wrapped up in a blanket and have a sore throat, I am getting the F out of there <laughs> and coming back with my own mask, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> Would I have thought to myself, oh, that guy's just skin wrapped around an alien? No, I would have thought, well, he's breathing in the weird fungal spores, at least, and I don't want to be around this. Time to run away, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
The other thing that was weird about the letter is that Akeley says, come see me as soon as possible. Also, you should arrive at 10 p.m. Here are the trains to take. Get here at night. It'll be great. Yeah. And then as soon as he says, I'm not going to arrive at night, I'm going to, he's like, that's the one thing I didn't like. Yeah. So I decided to arrive at 1 p.m. instead. And then Akeley says, well, I won't be able to pick you up. Someone else is going to have to do it. Yeah. Well, we forgot to mention that. So the alien creatures or the outer ones don't like to be out in the light. So they usually come and attack Akeley's house like in the dark and on moonless nights. And so that's why Akeley was like, why don't you show up well after sundown? (laughs) (laughs) Which the explanation is because they're from Pluto-ish. So there's no light that reaches it. And that's why they don't like it, Mm -hmm. I think, right? (laughs) Well, I I was thinking, so he was describing um, these creatures as coming from the planet beyond Neptune. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they had discovered Pluto at this point in history. And they had, like, just very recently. So he was like, aha, Pluto, that's exactly what these guys are. It's actually the dark planet, (laughs) Yagoth. Yeah. Yeah, Anne and I had a lot of fun speculating about how the downgrading of Pluto reflects the outer ones deciding that we are not worth talking (laughs) to after all. And they don't want us to pay any attention to Yagoth. Yeah. (laughs) Never mind. Oh, something I thought was quite funny also is um, Akeley mails a record that has a recording of this like horrible meeting of this alien cult in the woods. And when Wilmarth listens to it, he's like, well, you know, one of these voices was obviously an educated Bostonian. So, like, that was good. <laughs> so that's fine. Yeah. Trust this. Um, he just, like, his prejudices are so strange. When he ends up going to Vermont, he talks about, like, oh, man, the woods of Vermont. This is so awesome because it's just like, like, it's New England, but it's not polluted by foreigners. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> he, he also talks a lot about, like, the ignorant hill people. He does. <laughs> There's a lot of that. No, I mean, when I say he didn't like anyone who, any group of people that wasn't, you know, upper class, white, Anglo, New Englanders, when we're tracking this stuff, the one that we always end up quoting is the degenerate Dutch. Oh, yes. Which shows up in a different story. <laughs> Everyone is terrifying. Are they all alliterative because that would be amazing that's the only (laughs) alliterative one and this is not to you know downplay it because his bigotries were really severe and there were groups that he was much more terrified of than others which includes jewish people who are you know coming in and speaking different languages and being very intellectual not people of action and isn't it just disgusting when they walk by and Anyone with any level of brown in their skin is terrifying and worships Cthulhu. Right. Mm-hmm. I think, like, some of his prejudices, like the ones against other white people today, really, they do seem humorous because you're like, seriously? But then you read some of the horrible, horrible stuff he has to say about black people, for example, and you're like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> this is not pleasant. <laughs> Every time I read something by him, I obviously, it's terrible how prejudiced he was against almost everyone, but I feel so bad for him to live, like, he was trapped in a mind that was terrified of basically everything. He was just scared of everything, and he looked down on everything, but he was, like, a little bit attracted to it as well, and it's just, like, I can't even imagine what living in that worldview would have been like. Yeah. 
you can't help but think that like some small change or like something just additional, you know, in his childhood or in his formative years could have totally changed things for him. Like, I don't know what that would have been, but like he was like so close to like not being that way. Wow. It would have been nice. I Maybe. <laughs> this is definitely the kind of writer where if he was alive and profiting, I would be like, nobody read anything from Lovecraft. Right. He doesn't deserve to benefit from this. But right. So I'm very glad that he's been dead for a long time. <laughs> and I can report that he did not even particularly profit from his work at the time. Yeah, you know, right. A lot of this stuff was published for free in amateur presses. Uh, some of it was in Weird Tales, but they weren't paying a hell of a lot for that. One of the things that does fascinate me with this is that in general I find that most bigoted writers, when it shows up in their writing, it ruins it. Right. But for him, it seemed like maybe a jumping off point. <laughs> yeah. And when you read Lovecraft, the strengths of his writing are utterly inextricable from the weaknesses and the bigotries and both his failings and his successes as a human. So I keep prodding at it going, how did you take these horrible points of view and... Like, I, I can I can name one story where the story is actively weaker because of his bigotry. It's inextricable from this larger theme of how terrifying it is to be in a universe where the things that humans do and care about don't matter and that bad things are more likely to happen because of forces that don't care about us than because of forces that hate us. Right. Yeah. And like that is genuinely, legitimately, existentially terrifying stuff. Like it, living in an uncaring universe. Mm -hmm. Not cool. <laughs> I wonder if what's good about it is that also, if I were to write a story from the perspective of a white guy who is realizing we had this power, or we thought we did, and we're losing it, and other people are gaining, and we're insignificant in the grand scheme of things, like, if I were to write that character... <laughs> His stories are what someone would write when they were trying to say, like, look at this pathetic figure. Like, you can understand where he's coming from, but it's terrible. Yeah. So I wonder if that's part of what is so compelling about it as well. I've heard a lot of people who are Lovecraft apologists say, well, there are one or two stories that are obviously bigoted. But for the most part, it's completely separate. No, it's part of the warp and weft of these stories. He was someone who could write about being afraid of a terrifying impersonal universe in part because he was terrified of things that he should not have been terrified of. Yeah. Do you think he could have, like, say, taken those parts, or do you think someone could take those parts out of the story, those little comments about, like, the foreigners and the cosmopolitan and whatnot, and just keep those core aspects of, like, the weird fungal aliens, and it would have been just as good? Would it have been the same story? I think you could write a different story about the conflict between wanting to learn and wanting to act, but it would have been a very different story if it wasn't also seeing the community of minds as one of the things that was both tempting and mm -hmm. terrifying. <laughs> also, like, there's a difference between the narrative, obviously, being racist, which some of his stuff definitely was, and having, like, a narrator who is racist, <laughs> 
or bigoted or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think that is what I'm saying. Like, I think if you just take like the fantastical and weird like scientific elements and take out like the weird things the narrator says, like, could you have gotten the same kind of story out of this without it, um, you know, without it being obviously racist or xenophobic? But I also think in some ways that's the wrong question, because yeah. we can certainly see what Lovecraftian tropes without the racism look like, because many, many, many authors right. have now done that. And indeed, there are many of us who are writing about these tropes and putting the flip side of racism right. in the slot for the terror of other people that mm. he puts people who are not like me in. Like, when I write about this stuff, I am also writing about, I'm, I'm writing about people's fear of each other and treatment of each other mm -hmm. as part of this larger scope of you're living in an uncaring universe. How should we be treating each other? And what? how do we handle people who don't do that, who would rather make mm -hmm. this uncaring universe a worse, harder to live in place instead of a better one? And then if you're dealing right. with both of those, which one is right. scarier? Mm -hmm. But it is. It's a, it's a very different story because it's coming from a different perspective. And I think one of the really cool things uh, about Lovecraft's tropes is that because he has this aspect of being tempted by the things that he's afraid of, using it to talk about different aspects of a scary universe that will kill you without noticing and different aspects of things to be afraid of is a very easy thing to do. And one of the things I often say about this is that he made his sandbox so big that even the monsters could play in it. <laughs> but like, if you look at, um, for example, Charlie Strauss's work, he starts out by having the Cold War in that position of the human part of the horror and eventually moves on to things that are more like climate change. And you, you can map it to just about any sort of overwhelming apocalyptic thing that you might be facing. Right. Interesting. Okay. I think, um, yeah, I think that's what's interesting to me about Lovecraft is of all of the authors that we have covered so far the only one that even comes close to having almost maybe more compelling stuff written in dialogue with it and about it is like the Odyssey, which the Odyssey, it's just because it's so old that there's been so much time for people to produce stuff. Lovecraft, it's because his stuff has so many terrible things about it that the stuff in dialogue, <laughs> it was pretty easy for that to like, you know, have more value to me as like a <laughs> mixed race woman. <laughs> I think that's the problem. Like when we, for this podcast when we like to talk about like things that are classics like should they still be considered classics should we expel them from the canon or like what's the value to them i think with lovecraft really the reason to save it would be just because other people have so much interesting stuff to say about it <laughs> but i don't i don't know what you guys think jackie and theo is this your first or i guess you said your second Lovecraft story that you've read? Yeah, I, I don't really know that I know enough to be able to make an educated statement on that. I, I have a question, which is that, I mean, like, should we have high schoolers read this, for example? Mm. Do we see things like high school kids, like I'm thinking like, you know, boys, for example, reading Lovecraft and are these dangerous ideas 
for kids that age to be reading, kids who are impressionable. I'm not saying should we ban kids from reading Lovecraft, right? Because that is just going to make them want to read it even more. But, you know, <laughs> have we seen, you know, kids getting together in, in, in groups or individually reading these things and then having worse ideas as a result, you know? Like, you know, should we be thinking more carefully about how we introduce kids um, or young adults to these stories? First off, I'm very much a let a thousand cannons bloom sort mm -hmm. of a person. But in terms of how do you teach the canon to kids, I feel like there is some danger in not teaching kids how to interact with problematic right. things. Mm. Okay. So I would not assign a Lovecraft story all by itself, but I might assign a Lovecraft story in combination with some other readings. You know, get, throw some Victor Laval in there, throw some Nadia Balkan in there, uh, Sonia Tafe, some of Shauna McGuire's stuff. Um, just a, a handful of the people who are taking this stuff and in dialogue with it and using it to talk about the things mm -hmm. that were wrong with it. And I think that there is, because kids will eventually, if only because this stuff keeps showing up in modern work, end up reading mm -hmm. racist, sexist stuff. If it's just awful, you know, they, they could go in a couple of directions. They could just get bad ideas from it, I suppose. But they could also just say, well, why? I'm bad for reading this. I'm bad mm -hmm. for liking any part of it. Or people are bad for having read this for a hundred years. But if you show the conversation, I think that starts to give people an idea of how they can engage with things that have problems, sometimes subtler problems mm -hmm. by having the conversation, by acknowledging the problematic things in some way that is something other than the question of, am I made less pure by having this stuff come into my eyes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's important to, to introduce the nuances of reading it. And, and I'm not saying I necessarily would if I were a high school English teacher, which I'm very much not, pick <laughs> Lovecraft as a way to do that above anything else. But I think it, that teaching things as in conversation as opposed to references as a way of sort of invoking earlier pure mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. is an important way for people to understand literature. Mm -hmm. And I guess Lovecraft, I mean, just to my not mind, seems like a very good example of something that is both like compelling to read, but also also like has very clear problems. So it's not like hard to find those and talk about them. But I would have trouble honestly thinking of anything in the canon that doesn't have issues like that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. The thing about Lovecraft though is the problems are just so blatant that I think it might be easier for high schoolers to be like, yeah, okay, let's break this down. But something I think is kind of odd is when I have, there have been a few people who I have spoken to saying like, oh yeah, we're doing a Lovecraft episode, blah, blah, blah. And then I've said, like, oh, yeah, you know, Lovecraft famously racist, like, even for his time. I've had multiple people who are like, oh, really? And these are people who I don't know if it's that. Uh, I'm sure some of them, some of them have definitely read some of his stuff. Like, nobody that has said that was, like, a, like, a Lovecraft fan. But they were people who had, like, read some of his stuff or were at least vaguely familiar. So I'm wondering if for a lot of people, the fact that there's, like, a, you know, giant, ancient, tentacled god who does doesn't care about you. For some people, that kind of drowns out the more human issues. 
And so I, I think like the conversation is important. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some of the stuff that I've read for reading The Weird is things that I read when I was a kid and then didn't read for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've discovered is how easy it is to forget really important parts of stories. Right. Oh, like yeah. um, I'm, I'm thinking of Rappuccini's Daughter here, where when I was in high school, I was absolutely like, yes, femme fatale who can poison all of the men and entirely missing the degree to which she's supposed to be like this perfect innocent in a way that is really kind of annoying as a grown woman. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure for some people it's like that with Lovecraft and for others it's more of denial. (sighs) Rachel and I noticed that a lot. I I don't know if you guys have read the story Ruthanna was talking about, but Rappuccini's daughter, she's like the daughter of a scientist who, he's like a botanist, right? And he feeds her poison plants and over time she becomes like inimical to other humans. So being around her eventually poisons you. But that's a cool story we might cover on the pod later. It's a really cool story. And the garden is like symbolically the Garden of Eden and she's symbolically Adam and it takes a while to notice that she's Adam rather it's a really cool story in terms of symbolism and when I was a kid literally all I know I said oh she's like poison ivy that's yeah. great <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was gonna say I think Rachel and I noticed that a lot because several of the books that we've read for the podcast are things that we had read in high school or earlier and it, it seems like every single time we're like oh, I didn't notice a huge important part of this that totally changes my reading and interpretation of it. Like Catcher in the Rye, for example. Yeah. And I mean, these these were, at least for me, all things that um, I read on my own and I didn't, you know, have taught in class. But even if I had, I still feel like it's not even just like responsible teaching is important, which it is, but it's like you kind of just have to read things multiple times and at different developmental stages. I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was like 14, and I, spoiler alert for anybody who's going to read this, maybe don't listen to this next part, unplug those earphones, but I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance at the same time as my uh, my friend Philip, and so we finished it, and Philip was like, all right, so what'd you think about the part where he got the lobotomy? And I was like, what? Like, that was the whole point of the book, and like, I didn't realize that it happened. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about that other than like, kids are dumb. Kids just have different priorities, <laughs> I would phrase it that way, I think. <laughs> have different priorities but he was the same age as me and he got it and to this day I still think about that and like what else did I not know about right like if I hadn't had Philip to say like hey did you notice they took out part of his brain and that changed the rest of the story what if I didn't notice that about some other huge thing that I read yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually that comes up in most literature somewhere around the two-thirds mark right at the golden mean the main character gets part of their brain taken. brain comes out yeah like I read Tess of the Durbervilles and I was like what do you think about the lobotomy I think um the next book on our docket is Dune, which I think is similar in that is like another sci-fi touchstone that has a lot of issues <laughs> that a lot of people don't really like when you see discourse online about Dune, most of the time from what I've seen, it's like giant worm as opposed to kind yeah. of like strange <laughs> Orientalism. And <laughs> let's talk about how women are handled in this narrative and that sort of thing. So I'm I'm excited to talk about that over a few episodes. <laughs> oh, also, before we end the episode, if you would like to give some you can do this whenever. But if you'd like to give some recommendations for people of other like neo Lovecraftian or even just like weird fiction writers we kind of like to do that since we mostly talk about you know the classics we like to throw in some plugs for 
more recent stuff? Well, let me see. Um, my absolute favorite neo-Lovecraftian work is Sonia Tafe's All Our Salt Bottled Hearts, which is the other Jewish Deep One diaspora story riffing off of The Shadow over Innsmouth. So if anyone else writes one, we'll have a subgenre. But hers <laughs> is brilliant and poetic and flipping around Lovecraft to talk about what happens if the things in your ancestry that you admire and value are not things that you get. So that's a gorgeous one. Wait, are you saying if two people riff off of something? No, three. Or sorry, if three people do, then it's a subgenre? If three people do something, it's a subgenre. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. It's the rule. Okay, Rachel. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would be the one to write about that aspect of Lovecraft, not being Jewish myself, but I could do something else. <laughs> but yeah, so that one's brilliant. And of course, you've mentioned Victor Laval's uh, Ballad of Black Tom, which is really great and ripping off of Lovecraft's story so terrible that I made our blog commenters bribe me with Lilith analysis <laughs> to actually get around to it. Um, of the old stuff, uh, I love Robert Chambers' King in Yellow stuff, which reminds me a lot more of H.G. Wells and is, I think, a bit of a more modern sensibility. I mentioned Nadia Balkin, her stuff is brilliant. Lots of different short stories there. Uh, you talked about Freeman Muhammad. I, I, if I'm not careful, I could go on very easily about <laughs> uh, six years worth of different fascinating authors. Um, Nibidita Sen, everything that she does is really great. <laughs> but also people can just go over to reading the Weird and the Lovecraft reread and they'll yeah. find many, many recommendations and anti-recommendations yeah. of stories that we have loved and hated. So if you want to check that out, you would just Google reading the Weird and Lovecraft reread and, and you would find those sites. It's on tour. Yes. Okay, it's on, they're both on tour.com. On tour. Okay. So, yeah, I really love that series. It's really interesting to me, especially as someone who always gets scared. It's easier for me to read a summary of something. <laughs> We're going to link those in the in the show notes, too. So you guys will be able to find that on our website. To find the show notes on the website, you just go to firethecanonpod.com. And then um, you have to click on the actual link that is the title of the episode. And then you will see the show notes below that. Yeah, and I'm actually I'm the opposite of you because I am actually that weird thing of a horror fan who is very hard oh. to scare. So when I talk about a story and I say this one scared me, that is a high recommendation. <laughs> oh, I did want to ask, you had mentioned there was one Lovecraft story where you said like the bigotry really, really hurts it. Is that the horror at Red Hook? It is. It is the okay. horror at Red Hook. <laughs> it's a terrible story. It has no redeeming features. <laughs> right. So that's the one I would wow. recommend reading The Ballad of Black Tom instead of the horror at Red Hook. Yes. <laughs> Not even both, but just the take on it. Hmm. But Okay, uh, Jackie and Theo, did you guys have, was there any funny thing in the story that we forgot to mention? I feel like we covered most of his absurdities. Uh, one funny thing that I don't know if you guys thought about, but um, it came up several times, but especially after the narrator goes to Akeley's house in Vermont and is spending the night there and he wakes up in the night to hear like, you know, this conversation downstairs that Rufana mentioned about where they're kind of arguing about like what to do with him. He does this over and over again. He'll like, you know, he knows that there's crab fungus alien creatures 
creatures <laughs> and he's seen their, you know, their claw prints and like the picture of them and these other things. And he knows that, you know, there's this buzzing voice downstairs. So he knows they're in the house and he says this, but then he'll like hear some like clicking and scuttling on the wooden floors. And he goes, I didn't want to comprehend what that could be. It's like, it's the alien. What do you think it is? And so he'll see these obvious or hear these obvious signs and be like, I didn't even want to know what that could be. We're in denial. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know what it is. It's the crab thing. It seems like he got away pretty easy compared to most Lovecraft protagonists. Well, this is the thing people think. People normally, people tend to think about Lovecraft protagonists all go mad at the end. No, that's Durleth. Most Lovecraft protagonists end with having had the horrible revelation that they are not the center of the universe that, um, that's the <laughs> he end. does hint at the fact that he might go mad later oh, though yeah, so just give yeah. him a minute <laughs> but they often bring <laughs> that up yeah because going mad later is one of the things that is terrifying <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, terrifying to me as well but i mean the, the other thing is just that i felt like this story because again i don't know lovecraft i don't know what to expect i felt like this story could have ended at about chapter four, and I would have been like, ooh, cool cliffhanger. Indeed, it could have started at chapter four, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, true. Yeah, but it could have ended at all these different points, and I think it would have been equally as good, if not better. Most of the people I've talked to, including myself, agree that there is something wrong with the pacing of this story, but whether it should have started <laughs> later or ended earlier or been turned into a novel where everything could have been brought out into directly yeah. observed things, no one has agreed right. about that. He kind <laughs> of took all of the possibilities and didn't do any of them perfectly right <laughs> all right um so we thank um ruthanna emrys so much for joining us like we mentioned you can go to tour.com and find her pages which are um lovecraft reread and reading the weird okay there are also links to stories and books on there as well okay <sighs> awesome so we hope you'll check those out and also check out some of her own writings which are excellent you can find us at fire the our facebook is at fire the canon podcast our twitter and instagram are at fire the canon pod you can also go to patreon.com slash fire the canon if you'd like to sign up for one of our um donator tiers and get some extra perks there that is patreon.com slash fire the canon pod Canon, as always, is spelled C-A-N-O-N. So now we'd like to just wrap up by um, saying thank you so much to Ruthanna and thank all of you for listening. And we hope you really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. I was a little worried that you would be like, "Uh, I talk about Lovecraft too much. Not interested. (laughs) But I'm glad to see that wasn't the case. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I can only speak for myself, but you've definitely educated me a lot. And there were a lot of things I did not know. And I'm very happy to have this background. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I couldn't think of a better person to talk about this with. (laughs) 